Good morning, Gospel Hope. Um, as you know, today is a very special Sunday uh, because we have chosen to regather uh, at 11 a.m. on uh, June the 14th, as well as we plan to continue to serve you in this way. And so we are thankful for whether you are at home viewing us or whether you've chosen to view us um, together in the sanctuary, uh, we're thankful for you uh, in every regard. And uh, just ask that uh, each and every one of you will continue to be prayerful for us as we continue to pray for you. Uh, we don't want you to feel any tension or any sense of guilt um, based on your readiness to return. Uh, one of the great things that we've learned during this time of serving via the grace of technology is there are opportunities for us to just kind of expand our reach and footprint and discipleship um, efforts even through um, virtual services. And so this is a particular format that uh, in most regards uh, is here to stay. And so um, uh, as you know, we are back continuing in our series in 1 Thessalonians. And we are looking at today um, chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Just a short handful of verses, but very meaty in their implications for us as the body of Christ, particularly in light of some of the things that we are working through culturally right now. But before I start unpacking any of that, let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we are thankful to you for your word. We say that on such a regular basis that my heart often has to pause to make sure that that hasn't become a liturgical routine. I really do savor your word. And Lord God, if there's any part of me and any part of us as a congregation that has taken your word for granted and not savored it for the beautiful, strong, and powerful um, uh, blessing that it is, Lord God, reshape our, our understanding of your word. Uh, show yourself to a strong and mighty through it even now so that our uh, appraisal of your word is as high as it uh, has ever been. Uh, we ask, oh God, that you would open the pages of scripture, glorify yourself, edify your people, beautify your son, and Lord God, make us all the more ready to be a city uh, that is set on a hill. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as I mentioned in some of my opening uh, remarks, we as a church find ourselves in a unique season right now. COVID-19, shelter in place, and of course, uh, many of the civil uh, and racial uh, activities and dimensions that are taking place in our culture. And because of those things, uh, one might be wondering exactly what role should the church be playing? We talked last week uh, a little bit about how the gospel gives grit and has gravity and grace that allows us to have counterintuitive uh, flexibility, uh, countercultural um, activity, and also gives us counterbalance so that we're not just all over the map. But one of the things that I see happening in our culture right now is that there is definite you know, cultural change underway. And as this change is underway, I'm seeing a lot of characters and players trying to take credit for that change. You have all kinds of forces and entities, organizations, people, some political, uh, some individual, some uh, 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 racial uh, in their orientation, uh, but institutions and individuals jockeying for position, taking credit, trying to see who can have the particular influence. Like everyone is attracted to this unique cultural momentum and obvious change that is underway and so how do we as a church make sure that in all of this change, 
and all of this groupthink that is going on, that we are not whisked away in an unrighteous way, but we are actually playing a redemptive role amid all of this. Well, I think that today's message helps us to answer that question. Before we open the word, I want to share with you a brief story. In my backyard right now, there are two phenomena, more than one, but, but more than two, but, but two in particular that I want to highlight. Uh, one, if you've ever seen Zach Fowler's uh, social media, he may regularly take pictures with a small green lizard. That lizard actually belongs in my backyard. During the time that he lived with us, for some reason, the two of them developed a relationship. But anyway, this small green lizard has this beautiful, uh, brilliant uh, skin that is exactly the color of the leaves of my hydrangea. And so he is able to hide and to hang out and to blend in with his environment. He's grown up that way for years. And so he can remain relatively safe and undetected until the sun goes down or until all the activity around the house dies down. And then he can scurry out to see what's happening in the rest of the world. But his primary mode of adaptation is that he hangs out in areas where he can blend in with the same color as his skin. But there's another phenomenon in our backyard and it's a bittersweet one, and it's Bermuda grass. No matter how high or low I cut it, it always seems to creep and to grow into places where I don't want it to go. Now the creeping dynamic of Bermuda grass I absolutely love because if there are other areas of my lawn that are bald or, or that are uh, dry or that are undernourished, I can trust that Bermuda grass will grow in those areas and thrive even in shady areas. But one of the areas that I don't want my Bermuda grass to grow is over into my flower beds. But for some reason, the way it grows is it continues to just leap over walls and boundaries and barriers. Even if I spray a chemical, it'll come back eventually. If I cut it bare down to the ground, it grows back in that spot. I tell that story because both the lizard and the Bermuda have two different styles of adapting to their environment. One has chosen to blend in and the other has chosen to thrive in. I believe that the body of Christ should be one that adapts to our environment by thriving and growing in it, regardless of the obstacles placed before us. Unlike the lizard who just simply wants to run around undetected, that's not the role of the local church, just to blend in. As we mentioned last week, we do have a countercultural existence. And so this cultural table that has been set for us by the providence of God, whether it is caused or allowed, God is still in control. So this cultural situation we have, whether it is caused or allowed by the sovereignty of God, providentially presents a stage for the church to choose to either thrive and grow in it or just try to blend in and avert any danger. And I believe that the Lord would have us to thrive. Well, today's message in looking at uh, verses 13 through 16 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I believe gives us some helpful insights as to what it would look like for us to thrive in this environment. Because that's exactly what the saints at the Thessalonian church did. And you'll hear it in the words of Paul right here as we read together. Beginning with verse 13 from chapter 2. It says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the church of God in Christ 
Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. Final note, but wrath has come upon them at last. What can we learn from these three short verses about our respective adaptability amid change and challenge? I'll put it this way. My adaptability in a fallen world is reflective of my receptivity of the word of God. I'll say it again. My adaptability in a fallen world, my adaptability in a, in a collapsing culture, my adaptability in sinful surroundings, my adaptability in those times is directly reflective of my receptivity of the word of God. The word of God, I hope for us today, is raised off the page as more than just being the stuff we read like a, a, a devotional cough drop and when we chew it up, it's gone. But I hope that we will really see the staying power, the medicine of God's word and how it works in a believer's life to give us the capacity to thrive amid dynamic cultural situations. And we need it desperately as a church. Remember, I said that there is a great amount of competition in culture to take credit for the change that's happening. And there's also a great amount of competition to name where this particular cultural change is going. And the church should play a pivotal role. But exactly what is that role? And I believe that the word of God will help us to define that and how we redeem the time because the days that we are in are indeed evil. So there is a, a big statement, the biggest statement of the text I believe is found in the latter portions of verse 13. When the apostle Paul says, not only did you guys receive the word, but you received it and accepted it for what it is, not just our words, but as the word of God. And then he says, this word is at work in you believers. Well, what exactly is the work of the word? How exactly does the word work? These are the questions that we want to spend our time answering today. And I've got three distinct answers that will shape out the body of today's message. Uh, the first one is this. Looking at verse 13, I believe that the word of God bears witness to the truth. The first work of the word of God in the life of the believer is to bear witness to the truth. When I think about that, think closely about what Paul said. When we came to you and preached the word, you didn't just dismiss it or think of it as our words, but you received it for exactly what it is. Well, in order for them to do that, they must have had some exposure to the word of God previously in order to know where to put that or to even recognize what's the difference between man's words and God's words and to receive them accordingly. I'm reminded of the great story of Caleb and Joshua. In Numbers chapter 13 and 14, it's one of the most iconic moments in the history of Israel in their relationship with God. He brings them to the edges of the promised land, and the Lord gives a word to Moses and said, go to the people and tell them to go and spy out the land that I have given them. The Lord has spoken through Moses. Moses goes to them and per God's instruction, commissions a spy from each one of the 12 tribes. Two of those spies, Caleb and Joshua. <coughs> Excuse me. Two of those spies, Caleb and Joshua. They go over, look at the land, and indeed, it is wonderful, it is vast, it is beautiful, it is good. Uh, grapes are plenteous, 
So the land has everything that they need, all of the facilities, both agriculturally and residentially, everything that they could possibly imagine. This is the dream come true for a nomadic people that have no land, no place to name of their own. But of the 12 spies, only two of them came back with a favorable report because the other 10 spies, the other 10 representatives of the tribe came back very defeated and faithless. They said, it's a good land, but we can't take it. The people are too big and they live in houses that are permanent in nature. They're camped in, they're dug in, they're not going anywhere. They're larger than us. There's no way that we could prevail. But Joshua and Caleb, because the word that Moses spoke wasn't just taken as Moses' words, but actually as God's word, mixed with faith in them and produced a courage to even stand against the current prevailing doubtful faithlessness that existed amongst their peers. I believe that this is the first work of God's word is to bear witness in us when we have truth and to indeed cultivate faith. This same scenario or a similar scenario is what I just outlined from Numbers chapter 13 and 14 is talked about in the book of Hebrews in this way in Hebrews chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering into his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them because it was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. This, this is a throwback from the book of Hebrews back to the days when Israel did not enter into the promise of God because the word that they heard did not mix with faith. You see, the word that we hear must be mixed with faith. And that's how we come to know that this is the word of God. I want you to uh, consider for a moment uh, how we handle the word of God and see where you find yourself in this particular analogy. Um, if you've ever gone to the doctor like I have and maybe been diagnosed with a condition that you didn't want to know you had, but you kind of assume you did, but you're still in somewhat of denial. You go, you get medication following the diagnosis, you take the bottle and uh, have the prescription filled and you bring it home and put it in your cabinet. And you choose not to take the medicine even though you know you've got the condition. Or maybe you only choose to take the medicine when the symptoms are so um, uh, exaggerated that you can't do anything but take the pills in order to gain relief. Well, for some of us, if we're not careful, the Word of God can be treated just like that pills in the bottle versus medicine in the body. You see, pills in the bottle, that is, words in the book, uh, affirmation that this is the Word of God, intellectual consent that this is the Word of God, is completely different. Words in the book, completely different from words in the body. You see, when the Word of God is at work within our body, it does its best work. If any of you have an allergy and you walk outside, you immediately know if you've taken your medicine or not because all of the evidences of having not taken it show up in your life, the running eyes, the running nose. Think about how we even go to find allergy medicines. We go to the store and we look at their testimony on the cover or the exterior. And what do we say? We look for our specific symptoms. I don't want red eyes. I don't want runny nose. I don't want cough. I don't want sniffles. This is what I need. But choosing the right package off the shelf is only half the battle. We have to physically take it in order for the testimony of what's on the outside of the medicine package to begin working in our own life and preventing those things from occurring. 
And so I'm saying, and I'm challenging us, and I'm asking us to take seriously words in the book and make them not just medicine in the bottle, but actually medicine in the body. Uh, the Bible speaks to this further when it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and that hearing from the word of God. In other words, there is this unique romance between the word that is already in us and the word that we hear outside of us. If we want to be better at understanding whether or not what we hear coming from the outside world is truth, whether or not it is fully reflective of the sentiment of God, we need to increase the amount of word that is within us. There is a phrase in uh, the urban vernacular called uh, game recognizes game. Some of you may be chuckling. You know exactly what this means. That is, um, if the word of God is in you, it can also recognize the word of God when it is outside of you. It can recognize truth claims. This is one of uh, the steps that we want to take as a people, we want the Word of God to bear witness to the truth in us, but we need it in us so that it can have that effect. I'll leave you with this final statement. Um, when we take the Word seriously, we recognize His work in us more consistently. So when we take the word seriously, when I take the word seriously, that is, I don't just put it on a pedestal and buy a nice cover for it. When I take the word seriously, take it seriously into my life, I see its work in my life consistently. Going back with our medicinal illustration, many of you know for a fact that the best effect that some medicines have in our life is not going to be in the moment, but it's going to be after consistent and serious adherence to the prescription that we experience the fullest benefit over time. I would ask you to take seriously the same powers of the Word of God, that you need consistent, serious administration of the Word of God into your life in a prescribed way, daily, day and night. You need that so that you increase and raise your antennas for being able to discern truth in the world around you. And this is so important right now because of all of the players in the cultural scenario who are jockeying for attention and who might be looking to hijack the movements that are taking place so that they are not redemptive in their effect, so that they are only political in their orientation. So when we take seriously the word of God, we recognize it as the word more consistently. Uh, the psalmist will put it this way in Psalm 17, excuse me, Psalm 19, verses 7 and 9. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is true, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. Notice how the word of God has a static, um, uh, a definitive identity, right? The commandments. Uh, it is perfect. It is the testimony of the Lord. It is able to, to do all these things. But then it has this other definitive uh, uh, effect. It revives the soul. It rejoices the heart. And it makes wise the simple. It only does that when it is in us consistently and taken seriously. And if there was ever a time where we needed the soul to be revived, where we ever needed to be made wise in areas of our lives where we are indeed simple or don't know what to think. If we ever needed, in a moment like this, a reason to rejoice the heart that was internal and not external, it's now. So let us take consistently and seriously the Word of God so that we can see its effect played out in our lives. 
And that way we experience the first work of God's word. And that is that it bears witness to the truth. And we don't miss what God is doing because we don't know the difference between what man is saying and what God is saying. Let's take a look at verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 and 15 say these words, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. The second thing that the Word of God does is it builds up the weight during trial. The first thing is that it bears witness to the truth, but the second thing is it builds up our weight during times of trial. What do I mean? Look at how Paul celebrates what happens in the lives of the Thessalonian believers even amid deep and great mistreatment. They did not waver. He says, you became imitators. Now, they didn't become imitators of these other churches because the other churches sent them an email and said, here is our strategy for how to work uh, uh, in a culture that is heading in a direction that is contrary to the gospel. Here's what you do if you have people who are against gospel preaching in your surrounding area. No, they didn't have any uh, exchanging of notes. He says that the word of God itself at work within them, because of its work, they became imitators. They became like-minded. Well, how does the word do that? What effect or quality does the word of God have to cause people to become imitators who may have never met one another? What is this, what is this, this, this quality of the word of God? Well, I like to think uh, about Jesus during his time in the wilderness. Jesus, uh, as a prelude to his earthly ministry, uh, there in Matthew chapter 4, we're familiar with the three consecutive temptations of the Lord Jesus. And I want you to remember carefully what happened in the life of Jesus in that moment. The three temptations, the first of which was Satan approached him and said, Hey man, you've got to be hungry. You've fasted for 40 days. Why don't you take these stones and make them into bread? Remember that? And Jesus told him, No, man cannot live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I believe that trial builds up our weight, our maturity as believers, because it increases our discernment for truth versus lie. Uh, Hebrews, the author of it, uh, put it this way in chapter 5, verses 12 and 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. Here it is, building up your weight, becoming more mature by the word of God. Verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers trained of discernment by constant practice to, dis to distinguish good from evil. Jesus showed us that during his time of having fasted and then having been tested, that his discernment for, the, for good and evil is, it, it is, it is at its highest, it's at its peak. I believe that we can learn from Jesus' example that if we savor God's word, that it produces that maturity in us. And it's not just me believing, yet the word of God says it if you'll take the word of God and not my words. The word of God just said that, that, that mature believers who are mature in the word, have their senses trained to discern good and evil through regular practice. 
right? So consider again the life of Jesus. Jesus is confronted with a temptation. He tells Satan, no, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's met with a second temptation that he should, he takes him up to a high temple, tells him to throw himself off. And uh, uh, the, the word says that uh, you won't dash your foot against the stone. Jesus then tells Satan that he's not supposed to tempt the Lord God Almighty. He answers again with the word of God. And then there's a third temptation that we're all familiar with. He says that uh, if he'll bow down to him, Satan says to Jesus, if you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus rebukes Satan and says, get away from me. It is the Lord your God that you should worship and him alone. And so three consecutive times, Jesus having all power, being God in the flesh, still relying on the power and the effectiveness of the word to work in his life to produce both discernment, devotion, and to demonstrate his great displeasure with evil. I want to unpack these again, just a little bit more slowly. The word of God builds up weight and maturity for us during times of trial, and we need this. And that weight looks like increased discernment, increased devotion, and increase in our displeasure with evil. Displeasure with evil is crucial in our fight against sin. It's not enough just to look in the word of God and say, here's a list of all the things that are wrong and that I should not be doing. It's very informative, but it's not very empowering. It's when the word of God is at work within my life, actively changing my appetites, and I grow to hate evil, not just sin and evil in the lives of others, but I grow to detest and hate it in me. And that's when we really begin to make progress in our sanctification. But I want to take a look at something else that happens that has a very local example and application, even among us in our own congregation. When it talks about the increase of discernment, I was perusing um, the tidal waves of social media this week, and I came across a post from a particular member. Um, she'll know exactly who she is, and I may reveal the identity later, because this is an affirmation of her great maturity in God's word and her ability to discern good from evil and not be caught up in the social tides. Um, she had posted a, 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 an image or video or a status update of her participation in a rally in Clarkston and uh, affirming the truth statement that black lives do indeed matter. Immediately following the post, someone swept in uh, with an image of a fetus and said, um, well, what you really need to be about is uh, uh, the pro-life movement and preserving the lives of the unborn. And then another person swooped in and said, uh, you know, no, what you really need to be about is, is something else. And this particular member, very clearly and carefully demonstrating active discernment said it is possible to support the life of the unborn refugees and the life of black men and women and people of color it is possible to simultaneously believe in the truth of all of those movements and not have to pick teams as we see being chopped up in our culture and society today. My heart was blessed when I saw that particular line of discernment because what is happening in this great cultural competition for influence is that people want the church to choose a political team. They want the church to choose an ideological team. And some of the movements that are out there are not our movement. 
In other words, we're being offered these false equivalencies. People are suggesting that if you are pro-refugee, then you have to also be pro this litany of other things that they brought to the table. Or you, if, you're, if you affirm the statement that a black life does matter, oh, then you must be also a co-conspirator with the organization at large and believe in the full manifesto that you would find on the website belonging to the organization that bears that name. But discernment with the word of God allows us to recognize bread as bread and stone as stones. Discernment allows people to see amid, amid competing cultural influence, discernment allows us to clearly see and detect that the statement that a black life matters and unborn life matters can be independent truth claims with no collision regardless of any given organization that may have taken it as their brand. And so these are the kinds of ideological and truth discernment battles that are a front or, uh, or ahead uh, for the church uh, in the future. Um, and so, uh, but it is the word of God that will help us maintain the appropriate balance and walk that tightrope of truth, if you will, without being tricked into falling into one camp or the other simply because someone else may have similar ideas, but not necessarily gospel-driven ideas. So um, with that being said, my ultimate point with this is simply, during trials, the word is intended to be two things, both supernatural and super practical. The word of God, as you saw working in Jesus' life, was both supernatural in its effect, whisk the devil away, and super practical. Jesus actually used it. Jesus actually depended upon it. The word of God, as it is working in our life, is both supernatural and super practical. It's supernatural because there are certain things that only God can change. Only God can change the hearts of men. Only God can change the culture of a country. Only God can bring about righteous perspective. That's the supernatural work. But God's people are responsible for declaring it. God's people are responsible for demonstrating it. God's people are responsible for modeling it. So the word of God is both supernatural, because he's got stuff that he does that we can't do, and it's super practical, things that we should be doing. One of the best biblical illustrations of that is probably um, the armies of God and Joshua around the city of Jericho. The Lord told the people that they should circle around the city of Jericho seven times and then after that that they should shout. And that was their practical, their super practical step. But when they did the super practical, God did the supernatural. He brought down the walls and barriers. And I believe that God is still in the supernatural business today If we are, and we should also be in the super practical business today and see the two of them at work within the outcomes of his word on our particular culture. Um, let's take a look at our final point, and that's in verse 16. Verse 16 says that a part of the reason that um, uh, the folks at Thessal the, the Thessalonian saints uh, received high marks in the eyes of Paul and others was because uh, they were imitators of the other churches. But then verse 16 says this. This is what the others were trying to do. They, they, were, they, they displeased all of mankind because they, uh, excuse me, they displeased God and opposed all of mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. But the wrath of, excuse me, but wrath has come upon them at last. The word of God bears witness 
uh, to the truth so that we can recognize truth versus a lie when it is preached and uh, spoken to us. The Word of God builds weight during trial so that even when things are pressing against us, our discernment, our devotion, and our detest for evil is increasing and we're not languishing or, or wavering. But also, the Word of God brings awareness of the wrath of God. You might be saying, well, what do you mean it brings awareness? It brings awareness of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is, can sometimes be a dirty topic. Let's be, let's be clear. There are times in the Bible when God scares us. You know, depending on the perspective from which you read the book of Revelation, God looks scary. Depending on some of the stories that you've seen in the Old Testament, God can at times look scary when we see him unpack his wrath. But I want to take a biblical look through the word of God and talk more about the wrath of God and the beauty that we see within it. Number one, the wrath of God is an expression of his righteousness and how that righteousness lays against wickedness. Right? But watch this. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, uh, Jesus gives us the parable of wheat and tares. And he talks about how a man plants a field with wheat, but someone sneaks in in the middle of the night and plants tares uh, in the middle of this field. When he, when he arises or when the wheat begins to grow, he noticed that the tares are growing up along with it. His workers asked the owner of the field, should they go out and just dig up everything or should they go out and try to separate the tares from the wheat? The owner says no, because if, if they're so intertwined that if you take up the tares, uh, you'll also uproot also the wheat. He says what we'll do is we'll wait until the harvest is complete and then we'll get the wheat and we'll separate the tares once the whole crop has been harvested and then we'll burn the tares. In other words, we'll judge, we'll take it away. This analogy gives us kind of some insights into um, maybe some of the delays that we feel in the implementation of God's wrath. What we need to know is that God's wrath in its application is very surgical. God wants to show his wrath in a way where his people are not consumed. And so over time, the Lord waits for it to be readily evident and clear where the righteousness is and where unrighteousness is, and he separates them at that point. The wrath of God is applied in a very surgical way. But not only that, Galatians chapter 6 verse uh, 7 tells us, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever sows, that he will also reap. Many times we can believe that because evil and bad things continue to persist, that maybe God is not on the job. Or we can't figure out exactly what's happening. But we already know that based on Jesus' testimony, that God's application of wrath is surgical. He will let things grow up together so that the separation can be complete without tearing up that that belongs to him, that are righteous. But then there's something else. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 lets us know that the wrath of God is also equitable. It God is not mocked. It may seem like people, including us, are getting away with unrighteousness. The, both the, the house of God and even people outside the, the, the household of faith and, and God are not going to get away with evil. Even The Bible tells us clearly that there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus, but the fact that there is no condemnation for us that are in Christ Jesus does not mean that God isn't going to punish sin. And so God is fair or God is equitable in his distribution of wrath and judgment. He will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow, individually, institutionally, and also culturally. But something else that we need to know about the wrath of God is not only is it surgical, not only is it at, uh, uh, equitable, but it is also charitable. It's loving. I mean, isn't it awesome that we know that one day all evil will be dealt with 
that the very sin that I struggle with will be destroyed, that the very death that we all fear will be destroyed forever, that the very devil that regularly tries to wrangle us and remove our peace and to take us out, to steal, kill, and destroy our joy, that that very entity, that all of that will be ultimately defeated. The, the wrath of God is charitable. And the, the remembrance of God's wrath and the fact that he does indeed judge is actually something that should be savored by the believer. And listen to these words in Psalm 19, verses 11 through uh, 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 13. Moreover, by, the, uh, by them, that is the word of God, your servant is warned. This is the word of God. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant uh, also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You see, the same characteristic that makes us aware of the wrath of God also is at work within the believer, making us aware of the holiness and the righteousness of God to steer clear and to warn us of the need to repent of a, for, in, a, in our own lives. And so the wrath of God is surgical, it is equitable, but it is also cherishable. It is something that is charitable. It is, it is a loving act of God to show us our sin and to ultimately deal with it all together. Um, one final point on this conversation of the wrath of God, it will be this. The wrath of God is only a surprise to those who suppress the witness of his word. The wrath of God is only a surprise to those who suppress the witness of his word. Right? So Romans chapter 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, we can trust the internal witness of God's word in three most magnificent, wonderful ways. When the word of God is at work within me, it helps me to be able to clearly identify uh, what is true and what is not. It clearly raises my discernment during times of trial, my staying power, and my ability to, to see clearly when others may be presenting me with false proposal and false equivalencies of truth. But also, the Word of God warns me of my own sin and also warms my heart in confidence that one day God will deal with all unrighteousness. The wrath of God, as proclaimed through His Word, actually gives me hope that God still has it all under control, but he's working it out on a timetable that matches his glory. The word of God does that for us. But one of the ultimate things that God's word does in our lives is it informs us of the truth of not just God's wrath, but also how that wrath has already been poured out on Jesus on, be on behalf of those who are being saved. The wrath of God is a non-negotiable. It is indeed coming. This might feel like some old 1980s preaching. You say, is this guy getting ready to do like a fire and brimstone routine on us? No, but the wrath of God is something to be really considered in all of its dimensions because it is the reality of Jesus dying on the cross and him bearing our sins that we see him bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. And so, ladies and gentlemen, you and I should truly want to explore the full dimensions of God's wrath because his son bore it for us. That was part of his loving, kind, beautiful, wonderful, substitutionary, loving gesture toward us to bear the wrath of God. 
Jesus Christ was the word in flesh. Ask us to both eat his flesh and to drink his blood as our expression of understanding and commemorating the gospel. The word of God not only gives us staying power during times of trial, but it also helps our hearts to have a higher appraisal of what Jesus did on the cross by bearing the weight of God's wrath. Ladies and gentlemen, we need God's word working in us deeply. We don't want to have a foreign ear for the gospel. We don't want to get far away from the truth of what Jesus did on the cross. And we don't want to find ourselves drifting in a culture that has a variety of different influences and nuances that are telling us things that may not be fully aligned with God's truth. And so we need the word at work within not just the book, but also within our bodies. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your great grace and mercy your loving kindness, and how it is that you have preserved your word for us throughout time and history, and how you have given it to us now, and by way of your Holy Spirit, unpack it, Lord God, for us, so that we can find our greatest joy in you and in fellowship with you. We need you, Lord God, in these times. We pray, O oh God, that you would teach us how to, as a church how to redeem the time. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.